Alright, so if you'll turn to Luke 4, Luke chapter 4, and we'll be looking together at the devil and his devices because it is really important that as counsellors we take the devil seriously. And you know, one of the interesting things is that in a lot of counselling books and also counselling courses, the devil is not mentioned very much. And I've just kind of noticed that. Even in a lot of the good ones, you know, they, they, they don't really talk about the devil. So as this is a course on aspects of biblical counselling, which is meant to kind of dovetail in with the, like an introductory course or more advanced course, it kind of deals with those subjects that are sometimes given short shrift. I thought that it would be advantageous and important to deal with the devil. Uh, you know, in our present age, it's, it's almost, huh, I might say tempting. It is tempting, isn't it? To just make the devil another box that we tick of things that we believe and move on. And that's not what the Bible does. And it's not what Christians in the past have done either. That Christians in the past have taken the devil very, very seriously and have taken his activity very seriously. Remember that Peter uh, says that we are to be vigilant. We are to be wary because our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you resist him steadfast in the faith. But but he goes about as a roaring lion. And, and one of the things that we need to understand about the devil is that unlike a roaring lion, the devil goes about like a roaring lion all the time. You know, lions spend quite a lot of the day sleeping. The devil takes no time to sleep at all. He's always at it and he enjoys his work. And I'm going to be quoting a Puritan author uh, to that uh, later on. But let's look at the temptation of Jesus here in Luke 4 and pull a few things from it. We'll be looking quite a, at quite a few texts in the Bible today. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that. Notice that we um, noticed this last week that uh, this is uh, a book that is concerned with the Holy Spirit and he's led by the Spirit, verse 1, also into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, this is Jesus who is the Son of God and he's full of the Holy Spirit. Does that make it a fait accompli? Does that make this a Pointless exercise. Uh, after all, he is who he is, and then adding to it, he's also filled with the Holy Spirit. So the devil doesn't have a chance here. I mean, what's the devil even bothering to show up for? Do you see? Was this temptation a real temptation? And we must answer yes. We must take this passage seriously, that Jesus felt the force 
of the devil's temptations. Even though he was who he was and even though he's uh, filled with the Spirit. That being the case, I think we need to take the devil's temptations even more seriously because we are not him and even though we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit, that's a continual thing, we very often, if we put our hands up, honestly, have to admit that we're not. We're not filled with the Spirit a lot of the time. So, we're open to the temptations of Satan a great deal. So, we might uh, might do as good to examine them a little bit here. So, what's the first one? The devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, the power of this temptation, which doesn't seem to be much of a temptation, it doesn't take long to say, um, is in the if. And it, behind that if is, uh, it, there's a, a certain ambiguity, uh, kind of a double meaning. Because the devil knows who he is. So it's not the devil coming along to Jesus and saying, you know, if you're really the Son of God, if you, in fact, I think there's more to it here, but if you are the Son of God and you are therefore the, the Messiah, and obviously you must be famished, then, you know, show your power, show who you really are, and command these stones to become bread. It doesn't sound like much of a temptation here because surely Jesus can just come back and say, well, I know who I am. If you don't believe who I am, so what? You know, no, I mean, Jesus is humble, isn't he? So his, his pride's not going to kick into gear, is it, and say, oh, I, I need to defend myself here. So, so there must be more to this temptation than just that, okay? The, the if has this, this uh, more penetrating idea of uh, almost like since you're the son of God, well, since you have this claim to be the Son of God here on earth, and I've been here on earth walking around to and fro for thousands of years, and all of a sudden you're showing up. So, uh, since you're saying that you're the Son of God, then do something to show that you're the Son of God. And um, because you're hungry, all right, you've, you've fasted for long enough now. Now, now it's time for you to... Um, to feed yourself. So, you can kill two birds with one stone here, you see. It'd be easier for you to just prove to me that you are who you are, and then the kind of behind that would be, and then that'd be sufficient for me. You know, I'll just go and toddle off, you know, with my tail between my legs, literally. <laughs> um, and and you'd have proved who you are. So, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing... Uh, no problem here and you also obviously need to provide food for yourself I mean you've not been provided for so so it's time to eat you know feed, feed yourself here so it, it's that kind of a, a nuance that you see through the t- first temptation 
And how does Jesus answer him? Well, the first thing he does is he answers them according to scripture. Now, of course, you know these things. But he answers them according to scripture. And let's not, let's not forget this. Let's not take this for granted. We, I think, often think that we have this thing called faith. And if we just have this faith, then Satan will just go away. But Jesus' response to the devil was not, have faith. Jesus' response to the devil was uh, an active thing. It was, it was to repulse him with the scripture. So that means that he was calling to mind the truths of the scripture. Do you see that? That's what we need to do. We need to understand that the scripture is powerful in that spiritual realm. It's powerful in the spiritual realm. And then, therefore we call upon it. Um, we, uh, we've all felt, when we've been reading the Bible, particularly if we're going through parts of Leviticus or the first part of First Chronicles or whatever, or, you know, the... Uh, the, the diagrams for the tabernacle in the second part of Exodus or the diagrams for the new temple in the last part of Ezekiel that, um, like, you know, the Monty Python thing, you know, skip a bit, brother. Um, it's like we want to, we want to kind of move along because it's, it's just this rather dry description of um, details, and we don't. We want to kind of skip past that and get to the stuff that's that's edifying, <laughs> that's helpful. Okay, but then you know we might think, well, yeah, I, you know, I'm reading through Jeremiah. He just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, it just seems to be such a long book and he's, you know, woe to Babylon and woe to these people and woe here and woe there. And let's skip the woes for a little bit, you know? I mean, and we find ourselves kind of jumping to our favorite passage of Jeremiah. We'll go to chapter 31 or something like that of Jeremiah and we'll skip some of the heavy chapters. You know what I'm talking about here? I think you do. And we don't realize that all of Scripture is inspired. And because all of Scripture is inspired, all of Scripture has a spiritual power. And it has the power, even when we're reading dry details, to minister to our spirits. You see, in a positive way. And in, in that realization... There is the counter-realization that when we are tempted or when we are aware of the devil uh, approaching and attacking, that we take that same belief, that same understanding of what scripture does for us in, in doing good to us, and we see that it has power to repulse the evil spirits. Yes? Edifies the good spirit, as it were, ours, and the good spirit through the regenerating power of, of uh, God and power to repulse the evil spirits too. Not using it in a kind of a, like a magical wand, 
but using it simply for what it is, the word of the living God. And that's what Jesus does here. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word, by, by every word of God. Now, those of us that, that want to skip through the book of Deuteronomy, because after all, you know, that's not one of the most exciting books in the Old Testament, we might not uh, find that verse, because we might not know it's in the book of Deuteronomy. But all of, Je- uh, all of Jesus' quotations here are from the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Which is interesting, isn't it? One of those dry books. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, or every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Say, this is, this, this truth that repulses Satan, there's more to it again than meets the eye. Just as the temptation itself, there's more to it. Uh, what Jesus says has uh, several layers to it. So let's, let's look at this. Just put this up here. Man. Okay, so in this statement, um, it's not a negative statement. Just because you've got this word not here doesn't mean this is a negative statement. This is a positive statement, all right? This is a statement of how man should live, yes? Um, So, an engine does not merely need gas, but also needs oil. Okay? That's a positive statement, isn't it? This is what an engine needs. It needs gas to help it run, and oil for the lubrication, so that the machinery doesn't, uh, you know, seize up. So, do you see that? It's a positive statement. And in the same, same way, this is also a positive statement. This is what we need to live. We need two things. Bread, food, gas, if you like, for the engine, and the word of God. As, you know, well, we don't need to stretch the analogy, but, but, but we need, we're supposed to live by the word of God. And how does this, how does this dovetail into what I've already talked to you about, you know, or I've already told you on this thing? What's the big thing I've been driving home in these lectures? Yes. Dependence on God. And you see it's right here, isn't it? It's right here. You're supposed to be dependent on God. And the way that you're dependent on God is specific. It isn't uh, by opening up your mind, okay, and letting a bunch of foolishness flood into it. Like I'm receiving messages from Jesus. But rather, 
It is, you've already got the message from Jesus. This is what you're supposed to be focusing on, relying on, trusting in. All right, so there's the first thing, but the second part of this is also important because this is used to rebuff Satan's first challenge, which is, okay, well, you know, you've shown up here claiming to be the the, uh, son of God. You're hungry. It's time to feed yourself. You can kill two birds with one stone by just doing the miracle. That will satisfy me, and then also you can feed yourself. And after all, it's only reasonable that you should want something to eat now. And by the way, also in that is the implication that it is down to Jesus to feed himself. Okay, you get that? That it's going to have to be Jesus who, who feeds himself. Okay, no one else is going to do it. So how, do, how is this a, a um, rebuff of that kind of temptation? Well, it's simple. It's, it's saying that, look, you're tempting me to have bread, and I know I need bread, but that's not the only thing. I also need to live by the word of God. And I'm living by the word of God, and because I'm living by the word of God... I know that God, because the Bible says it, will provide. Do you see? I, the Lord will provide. Therefore, this that I need and I've been waiting for will be provided by God because the word of God tells me that. Do you, do you see that? This is why... Um, the Bible must be central in our counselling of people and we've got to get people to see that centrality, that importance. Okay, Because uh, we like the quick fix. We like to press a button. We like to get on the, the cell phone. We like to text. We like to um, you know, email. We, we like to press the Amazon um, purchase button, don't we? Okay, we we like to, most of us do, Joyce. Most of us are tempted when we see that little yellow button there. Okay, on Amazon, place your order button, you know, it's like. Um, and, and we can do all of this really quickly, you know, and and the society around is set up for that. But what about if we really have a need? I mean, we've been waiting. We've been waiting. And Jesus had been waiting. But he's prepared to wait and keep waiting because he knows that the word of God is true. Do you see? So the mindset is very different than our instant gratification mindset. Satan... Uh, can use the culture that a person lives in to magnify the temptation. There's no point in him going to a, uh, a farmer in ancient Israel who had just planted his crop and uh, tempting him to reap his crop. There wouldn't be a temptation. Because it wasn't an instant gratification world 
you know, the cycles of, of the seasons and the, the uh, uh, crops and so on, they were well known. You just had to wait. Not in our society. Therefore, Satan can take something in our culture that wouldn't be a temptation in other cultures and he can make it a very strong temptation to us. Because we, we do live in a, uh, a world, a country, where we can press a button or we can just go to the store and get what we want. Do you see that? And so that what's the, the way to deal with this? You, you measure everything according to the word of God. Rely on God. And this is very, very important for for Christians and for faith, because this is this is Jesus, the Son of God. He's waiting on God, and he's hungry. He's really hungry, but he's going to wait for the right time. And we've been in situations and we will be in situations where we want God to come through because we're hurting or we're hungry or we have bills to pay or what have you. And we need to wait on God rather than give in to a temptation that would make us independent of God. You see that? So that's the, basically the first Thing and you say, how does this how does this roll over into biblical counselling? Well, in biblical counselling, it is true and it is very important that uh, a person ought to do what they can do because you don't want to just you don't want to be dealing with a fool who you, you tell them to do something and they don't do it. Okay, that's because you're going to get nowhere. And you're in that Proverbs dilemma, excuse me, Proverbs dilemma of striving with a fool. And you're going to get absolutely nothing out of it. And neither are they. But in a, in a situation where a person has done the basic things that they can do, what God would expect them to do, okay? So a farmer, for example, he can expect a crop if he plants the seed, if he's waiting for God to plant the seed for him, and he's just got the seed in a bag there in his barn, he can expect absolutely nothing because he hasn't done what he needs to do. Yes? So there's nothing, you know, it's out of his power to produce the crop, but it is in his power to plant the seed. And there are things that are within our power to do. But if we've done those things, what God expects us to do, then that's what God expects us to do. And now, we have to rely on God. And we need to never be bashful to tell people to trust God. Have you done what you need to do? Often they haven't. Okay? Often they haven't. But if you can get them to do what they need to do and, and, and uh, the pain's not gone away or the, the relationship's not been healed or whatever... They're impatient because they want to push a button and get instant gratification. You have to now say, okay, now you've got to wait on God. Now you trust God. Now you believe the promises of God. That's biblical counselling. And if a person has 
uh, anxiety issues, if you've, they've done what they ought to do, now you can tell them, this is what you're, you need to be anxious about. Be anxious about obeying God. Be anxious about trusting the scriptures, which tells you not to be anxious. Be, in other words, focus those energies in doing what the Bible says that you are to do. And if you do that, your anxiety level will go right down. Because you will realise that the Lord has broad shoulders. Yes? So there's some example of how um, understanding how to deal with these temptations in a sensible way uh, helps you in counselling people. Also counselling yourself. Yeah? If you don't delve a little bit and, and think a little bit about this, then you're just going to take this at uh, uh, a very prima facie way and you'll think, oh yes, yes, I know. You don't, I, I'm a Christian. I know we're body and soul. So I know I need to feed my face with food and I also need to be in the Bible a bit. And that's all you're going to take away from it. But you can't help somebody with that, can you? So the next one is, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. Okay, so we have here kind of a triple-layered temptation. Let's kind of examine it. The first part of the temptation is um, it's a well. I'll just call it physical. Okay, that's the first part of the temptation. It's physical. He takes him to a place and shows him a place. Yeah. All the kingdoms of the earth. You say, well, what mountain is it? I don't know. I don't know. You say, well, there isn't any mountain in the world that he could take him to that can show him all the kingdoms of the world. So I don't believe that. Well, if he took him to, took him to a mountain probably to, to take him apart, away from um, Jerusalem and, and from the desert and so on and so forth, took him off to another place, probably a pleasant Grove or something like that, maybe on Mount Hermon or whatever. And there he, because he's powerful, he showed him like a, like a projection, not in his mind, but outwardly. Here, here's this kingdom, here's that kingdom, or here's this kingdom. Yes, that kind of thing. Probably went on. But it was physical. Yeah? Showing him things out there. So Jesus, his eyes are being used, okay? Or being appealed to. Next part of the temptation is all this authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. That's the second part of it. So he, uh, along with the, uh, the visual there is a, a message underneath too. Okay? 
And the message underneath, or the message in his ear, is basically that you can have this. You can have all of this. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. And all of the authority. I mean, it's not just, it's, don't get me wrong, Jesus. Don't, don't misunderstand this. Okay? You can have the authority too over this. It's not a loan. I mean, you can, you can have this stuff. You can be the king. You don't have to go through the cross. Because that's really what you came for anyway. I mean, you, you have to understand that that the, the temptation or built into this temptation is the truth that Jesus is going to be the king of this world one day. Which if you have what I think is an erroneous view of prophecy that God doesn't or Christ doesn't come back to earth to rule over it is not a temptation, is it? But this is a, this can only be a temptation if Jesus is going to come back and rule on this earth. So it's a way past the cross. You can just have it right now. There's there's a temptation. I mean, a real quick way. You've just been anointed, so now you, now you're the Christ. Hey, let's just go straight to what you what you've uh, wanted here. But again, this is only a temptation if the second part of this is also true. And that is, let's put this up here, that it is uh, the message. Which is a true message. And also, uh, this, this appeals to um, what I'll loosely call pride, okay? But, but not pride in an inflated, self-righteous way. But, you know, there's kind of an, a legitimate pride. You can have a legitimate pride of things. You know, you can be proud of a person who really, uh, you know, has str- struggled... In their schooling, maybe your son, your daughter, they have struggled, you've seen them struggle and they've come through and they've got their degree or got their qualification and nobody knows how they've struggled but you know and you feel a sense of pride. It's, you're, not, you're not feeling anything in yourself, you know, apart from you're just so pleased for them. That, that's kind of the idea, all right? So there's that kind of temptation there. But, but in this temptation, there's a, there's a truth hidden in here that, that uh, comes out in Luke, and that is that Satan has the authority to give the kingdoms to whoever he wants to. Which, again, if you've got the wrong eschatology, if you've got, if you've got the wrong view, if you think Jesus is reigning now, you know, that, that's really silly because uh, Paul calls him the God of this world, the Satan. After That comes after the cross and the resurrection. Why? Because Satan has the power. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has the power right now. It's not been taken from him. And he has certainly had it before the cross. 
So Satan has real power, real authority. In Daniel chapter 10, you have uh, uh, a messenger, an angel, coming from Michael the archangel to Daniel to answer Daniel's prayer and response to that. But he's held up, I think for 21 days or something like that. He's held up by someone he calls the king of Persia, who's obviously not a human king. I mean, a human king can't stop an angel from doing anything. This king of Persia, and he also mentions a king of Greece, is a demonic spirit, obviously, who's holding up the angel. This is, these are powerful, powerful beings, and Satan's the boss. You had a king over Assyria, a king of Persia, a king over Greece, there's a king over America, I'm sure, there's a king over the nations of Europe and so on. They've all got demonic kings over them. And over the whole lot is Satan, who is the god of this world. This Satan, uh, Jesus doesn't challenge this. This could be an easy one for Jesus. He could just say, uh, actually, that's a big lie. This isn't yours and you don't have the power. We both know that's a, you know, that's not a temptation. But he doesn't do that. Jesus says, get me, uh, sorry, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This means that there is truth in these first two parts of this temptation. Do you see that? That's what that's the power of the temptation. The third part of the temptation is also uh, is connected. Therefore, if you will worship before me, I will be your all will be yours. All you have to do is worship me. That's all you have to do is just worship me. Do obeisance to me. That's the error. So he's Jesus uh, sorry, Satan is telling the truth here. But then, in the final part of this temptation, which we might call the demand, okay, or, you know, the, the, uh, uh, what, what do salesmen call it? And it's, a, it's kind of the bottom line thing, yeah? That's where the temptation is. And uh, this one um, is, is just basically to do with allegiance. So, got to make this the same. There's no point in contending the first two parts. This is where the real rubber hits the road. Now, what does this tell us? What this tells us is that, yes, we can be tempted, the eyes can be tempted by something that we want. And we may even want it legitimately, just like Jesus did. All right? So we may see it, we may see... um, I don't know, um, 
this is this is what has I've thought of quite a lot, so I'll just bring it up. Um, that I've seen many people in the church, particularly parachurch movements, but also within um, pastorates and so on. Many people tempted to to use their callings as a, simply a step ladder to the next thing that they have on their agenda, you know, as far as their worldly ambitions are concerned. Yes? In other words, they, they use, they, they're called to this ministry here, but they're called to the, they're coming to this ministry, but their eyes, their heart isn't in this ministry. Their heart is in, I want to be this kind of a guy up here. Yes? So I'm at this church, I want to be in charge of a big church. Um, I, I, I've got this, but I'm not satisfied. I want to, I want to have this. All right? I want to rub shoulders with these guys. Whatever it might be. Now, some of that, okay, some of that might be legitimate in that they respect some of the guy, these guys, okay? And they want to be part of that ministry. Um, let's think of, of uh, a ministry like Answers in Genesis, for example. Someone might say, well, I, want, I would like to work for Answers in Genesis ministry. Okay, but God's called them over here. Are they going to be satisfied with where God has them right now? Or are they going to, because they want to go over here, uh, is their attention really going to be over here? And are they going to be tempted to just do anything that's necessary in order to get the attention of Answers in Genesis or whatever other ministry. That's where the devil can come in to to tempt. Alright? And so, these two may be legitimate and they may be true. There may be nothing in the message that you can can, uh, poke holes in. But then what does it demand of you? What is the, the bottom line here? Um, is your allegiance to God as his servant and being satisfied where he's put you, you know, um, was it blooming where you planted or whatever the phrase is, is that okay? Or is that not okay? And you are, are you willing to switch, as it were, or compromise your allegiance in order to get what you want? Okay, so the devil can do that. So you're serving in the local church here, alright? But, um, you're a 27 year old gal. Because you're a 27-year-old serving in the church and you're doing a good work in the church, this is where God has you, you love the people here, uh, you feel, you know, you agree with the ministry of the church and everything, but you uh, can't find a husband. So Satan could, could uh, tempt you 
to go to that church over there, which the teaching ministry is really not that good. But there's young people over there and you might find somebody over there. The church here that you're ministering at and doing so much good at will suffer if you leave. So Satan will, you know, have scored some points because he would have impacted the ministry of the church here that's doing God's work. And that ministry over there is not going to do you any good at all. So the temptation is to switch allegiances, do you see? You're going to find as you counsel people that that they make uh, decisions, often they will tell themselves, hey, I've got legitimate reasons for this. And you might agree, yeah, I understand your need here or your want and and that's okay. But then you're going to have to say, but you can't compromise. You can't compromise in order to get what you want. You have to trust God. Yeah? Is God aware of your situation? Yes. Is God doing anything about your situation right now? Maybe not. You don't know. You don't know. But... um, If you've answered that God is aware and you are making God aware and you're going to trust God and you might even say to God, and it's scriptural to say to God, Lord, I'm going to stay here, but I want, I, you know, I want a husband. This is a legitimate need and and it's, it's causing me distress and pain. That's, that's perfectly okay. That's, that's kind of the, the guy banging on the door of his neighbor at night, you know, asking for some bread. Yeah? That's, that's okay. But then, once you banged on the door, you have to leave it with God. And you go back to do what God wants you to do. You're going to find that, that in counselling people, you're going to have to tell them to do something that they don't want to do. You, you need to stay in that marriage. Okay? You say, well, I'm, I'm done with the marriage. I'm done with the marriage. And uh, you, you may have to say, well, look, you're not being physically abused. They may be doing things, you know, they may be a lazy so-and-so or they may be, I don't know, whatever, have, have told you things that didn't come, so, come true and so on and so forth, so you may feel unfulfilled. But you need to stay in that marriage and trust that God can do something in that marriage. You may have to say something like that to somebody. This is part of resisting the temptation. But understand that the temptation that's coming to them is not just from them. It also could well be, in fact it will be connected to Satan too, or one of his minions. And this is the part that's that's been missed out by the modern church. And modern counselling too. Alright, so there's the second part of it. And then verse 
9, it says, Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Now he's going to quote scripture. So this is a different kind of a temptation, isn't it? So if you're the Son of God, again, it involves a physical looking at something because lust of the eyes is is kind of the first portal that, that Satan uses. And then he backs it up with scripture. It's written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he's saying, what these, these promises of the Bible, you know, let's rely on the Bible here. Let's be biblical. And what the Bible says is that it's, you, can, you can go head first over this pinnacle here because here's the biblical warrant for the fact that you're going to be okay. Okay, you, you're in God's will here to do this. But it will show me that you're the son of God. Jesus answered and said to him, again, quoting scripture, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So in that response of Jesus, we have, first of all, a rebuke to Satan, which is, since scripture doesn't contradict scripture, what Satan is doing in you misusing scripture is he's ripping it out of context to prove something that's erroneous, that's false. If it obviously collides with a straightforward command from God, then it can't be true. Is it ever good to tempt God? No. So you, the, the context there is settled, isn't it? It's never good. It's a kind of a universal. You just don't go around tempting God. Therefore, since this would be tempting God, because I don't have to, you know, go head first here over the thing, because I'm, then I'm relying on God to, to do this, that scripture must be out of context. I know it's being misused. And uh, many of these um, false teachers of faith use the scriptures in this way. They will quote parts of scripture to try and get a person to believe something and maybe even do something on faith for God without realising that actually what they're doing is they're tempting God or they're being foolish. They're going against something that's very, very clear. They're not proving all things, holding fast to what is good. They're just trusting that what they're being told by the false teacher is true. And this false teacher, very often it's very easy to check them out. One of the things would be, uh, we talked about discernment last week, but one of the things would be that if you're in the scripture, it's going to be pretty easy to, to uh, sense that they're not using scripture correctly. Um, so when Joyce Mayer or um, Beth Moore or someone like that, start spouting their stuff. If they're, pre- if they're preaching to men, you don't need to listen to them anymore. 
Because you know straight away that they are what? They're in, they put themselves in a position they shouldn't be in because the scripture is very clear and says that a woman shouldn't teach a man. So this is a person who doesn't have the authority to do what they're doing, which calls everything that they're doing into question. Then when Beth Moore says that she's got these messages from God, ah, well we understand why she would be doing something the Bible says not to do. When Joyce Meyer tells you uh, to just trust God and you will, you know, God will come through and bless you, where did, where did you get that from in the Bible? She will show you scriptures, but she'll rip the scripture completely out of context. God doesn't promise to bless you at all, not in this life, simply for obeying him. You're supposed to have the, the attitude of we've done what we were supposed to do. So the temptation here is uh, challenges us to, um, to focus our attention on the word of God, to know the word of God, because the first temptation was that we understand that we ought to um, study the Word of God for spiritual food in the same way that we, you know, daily we need to, a physical intake of food. And yet, if if uh, we are so easily um, taken out of the way by Scripture quoted out of context and by false teachers and so on, which we're constantly warned against in Scripture, by the way, constantly. Uh, that shows us that we're not believing that we ought to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see that? So it's a, it, it, what this does, and I think this is why Luke has inverted these temptations this way, what this does is it shows us, it kind of tests us. We may be right as far as understanding that yeah, the Bible is important and the Bible has power and so on. But then, okay, so you you understand that. So are you treating the Bible with the regard you ought to be treating it with? Or are you pig ignorant of it? I mean, really? Do you see? It's really important that uh, that we understand. And so, and we're in a counselling situation, we need to be taking people to the scriptures and say, this is what I want you to read, this is what I want you to study, and we're going to talk about this passage next week. Okay, great places to go in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. You see? Plenty in there. <laughs> And if they come back and say, oh, I didn't have time to do that, then you can test them and say, well, yeah, you had time to watch TV, I bet, and you had time to do this, and you had time to go to the match, and you had time to whatever. How important is this to you? So this, because uh, the devil knew that he was totally rebuffed here, he ended the temptation and the devil will end the temptation resist the 
devil, and he will flee from you. But you've got to resist him with the right things. You don't resist him in your own power. You don't resist him in this fluffy idea of faith. You don't resist him uh, just by uh, trying to, to have a conservative lifestyle. You resist him through spiritual means, which is reliance on the word of God, reliance on God. Those two things together. I know what the Bible says. It tells me to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm still being tempted. It's still difficult. I've still got these concerns and so on. But I'm going to wait on God. And then you're solid, you see. You can resist the devil. And I also believe you can do this. And this is what Satan, uh, what Jesus does. You can tell him to clear off. In Christ's name. Go. But you, you can't really do that if you're not taking the word of God seriously. Do you see that? Because then, if, if it's just you're using Christ's name to rebuff the devil, you're just like those sons of Sheba that, that used Jesus and Paul's names okay, to drive the demon out of the guy. You know, the devil's not concerned about you. I mean, you're nothing because you're not even relying on God. Your faith isn't in God. You're, you're an independent person, aren't you? And I can knock you over really easily. So he's got to see you the real thing. You're standing, as Paul says, in whose might? Ephesians 6.10. Whose might? Sorry? Christ, yes. Christ's might. Now that's a real might. It's not yours, but you're standing in that. Okay? Alright. Um, one of the most profound authors on the devil is actually C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis. His screw tape letters. If you haven't read the screw tape letters, you should read the screw tape letters. Um, they, they are not only superbly written, but um, they're very penetrating into the way that the devil uses um, temptations and the way that the devil uses ideas to get us to disobey God and to trust in anything but God. There's another book, I'll, I'll write this down, the Screwtape Letters. Lewis found this very difficult book to write because he had to kind of twist his mind okay, to, do, to do this. But he's done it for you, so you should read what he's put. And another one is uh, this book, The Gravedigger File, I think this one has been renamed recently, but this is good. This is uh, Os Guinness wrote this book, The Gravedigger File, Os Guinness. Um, this one is particularly about the way Satan subverts the church, the local church. This one is the way he subverts individuals. Both are well worth reading. 
Here's a quotation about the methodology of uh, the demonic from the Screwtape Letters, page 181A182. Just listen. In all experiences which can make them happier or better, only the physical facts are real, quote-unquote, while the spiritual elements are subjective, quote-unquote. In all experiences which can discourage or corrupt them, the spiritual elements are the main reality, and to ignore them is to be an escapist. Thus, in birth, the blood and pain are real. The rejoicing are mere subjective point of view. In death, the terror and ugliness reveal what death really means. The hatefulness of a hated person is real. In hatred, you see men as they are. You are disillusioned. But the loveliness of a loved person is merely a subjective haze concerning a real core of sexual appetite or economic association. Wars and poverty are really horrible. Peace and plenty are mere physical facts about which men happen to have certain sentiments. Now, I know there's a lot in there, but the basic idea here uh, in that paragraph is that we need to make sure that we have a biblical understanding of what is real. Because Satan subverts our understanding of what is real. Okay? So that person who hurt you and you hate them, that's a real hatred. And it's a real reason because that person's really bad. You see? But if you love a person, then the idea of the world is, well, that's just a, um, uh, your, your, um, just taken away from them, but the, the fit, that's just a subjective point of view. It's not real. The real thing is that, that it's just a sexual attraction, or it's a you know you just want money, or it, it, it's it's a good thing for you. That's the reality behind it. Yes. So the hatred is real, but the love isn't real. Do you see that? And so the twisting of ideas. Now, in the Bible, the hatred is real and the love is real. Do you see? But if you have a, um, a different worldview from the biblical worldview, then the devil will distort your understanding and distort the, your interpretation of your feelings, of other people, of your world, by just tweaking things a little bit. And we've all kind of known this. We've known that, that people who uh, maybe have something against, they have a hurt or a pain uh, against another person and they won't forgive them because it's too real. You see? So they can't forgive them for it because the forgiveness isn't real. Do you see? But maybe if they've hurt somebody, then that person ought to forgive them. Really? You see how it's distorted? <clears throat> and one of the things that, that Lewis does, and other, other writers do this too, 
is they get us off balance by focusing us on one aspect of reality. And I don't want to get too philosophical here, so I'm not going to make a lot of this. But because we're emotional creatures and because our emotions are messed up by the fall and so on, and we are so vulnerable to all kinds of impulses from inside and influences from outside, that it's very easy really to to, uh, if we're not careful, to, to get us wrongly focused. So you'll find that, um, well, let's, let's, um, let, let's look at this recent little debacle that's been in, in, the, in the news. This is a good example, actually. And that was uh, the kids in cages. Kids in cages view. So we have photographs of, you know, unfortunate kids in cages, supposedly. And even Time magazine had something like that. And, and uh, obviously, what does this appeal to with everybody? The emotions. But it doesn't just appeal to the emotions um, of, oh, that poor child. It, it appeals to, because the message is, it got to do with the injustice of the people who are doing this, okay? Who are even guilty of reintroducing Nazi concentration camps, you know, things like that, detainment camps. Yes? Isn't this is what, what's been on the news? So now we have a message here, which we know this is evil, and, and our emotions have been stirred up already by this, and what these people have been doing is they've been joining these two things together. And now, this is just something that is wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, I'm indignant. This is, this is just outrageous. And we're focusing on that. Devil's behind this, by the way. Okay? This, this is the devil's work here. But there are other things, okay, that, that we need to introduce. We need to not focus on the one thing and, and make that the totality of our thinking. There are other things to consider in order to uh, balance our understanding and kind of step back away from um, calling um, people who detain um, the parents and so on Nazis. First thing is that these are not little cages, okay? These are uh, large rooms, large centers, okay? Just call them large rooms, okay, for kids of illegals. And I'm putting the the question mark there, not because of the illegal, but because kids of illegals. Because the question is, 
are these kids related to the people who have brought them? Because very often, gang members and, and uh, you know others, they use the kids in order to... Uh, to uh, they're not the parents at all. They bring the kids over because um, the policy of the last government was to detain them for a short while. Yes, they separated them for a while, but they detained them. And then what they would do is they'd put tags on them and release them into the population of, a, of the states. And then these people would cut their tags and you never hear from them again. That's what went on under the last government. Well, this government said that's not, that's not right and it's not lawful. These people are here illegally. Okay, so we're not sure in many cases if these people are the parents. And they've, they've asked for, um, for, um, not amnesty, but uh, what's the word? Asylum. They've asked for asylum, so it's not like we caught them, we can just send them straight back. They're now they're asylum seekers, but they've crossed illegally, so they are illegal, so we have to take the parents because they've broken the law, and then we have to figure out all of these ramifications. Are the kids related to these people? Okay? What do you do with these kids? Do you lock them up with the parents? Do you send them back without the parents? What do you do with them? You put them in five-star hotels and charge the U.S. taxpayer. What do you do? Do you see? So, you have, and, and I'm not saying that the present administration did the right thing. I'm, that's not what I'm pointing it to here. What I'm saying is that how do, we, how do we balance this so that we don't jump to the wrong conclusion because we are overtaken by a huge emotion because we're focusing on one thing. We've got our attention fixed on only one thing. Um, what about the parents? What kind of parent would do this with, to their child? Would you do it? Would you cross the border knowing that you may be and that, in fact, you cross the border illegally and you know that you will be arrested and your, your kids will be parted from you and because you claim asylum, they're going to be parted from you for 20 days or whatever. Would you do that? Of course you wouldn't do that. I mean, maybe in a situation where clearly you were seeking asylum because people were killing you, you know, people like you know, in, in Syria or somewhere like that. But in Mexico? Yes, I know that they are mistreated. I know the government doesn't do a good job. But, are these people refugees, really? Do you see? So, my point is, and by the way, and in every other uh, uh, crime, the parents are separated, separated, in every other instance of, of crime. In America. Why is this one, why should this be any different? I mean, you, you rob a bank and you go to prison, you're separated from your kid. Okay? You're the idiot. Your kids suffer, unfortunately, 
Okay? But that's the reality. Where's the responsibility here? Where should the outrage be? And of course, these are not Nazi concentration camps, and these people that are uh, dealing with the kids are not Nazis. They don't want to kill these kids. They don't want to hurt them. What's my point? To make a political point? Absolutely not. I don't care about solving a political problem. It's a quandary. My, my focus here is that the attention was put here, putting these two messages together and focusing on that one thing. And because that got everybody's attention, everybody's blood was boiling on this one thing, instead of stepping back and thinking, hold on a minute, we've got a problem here. How do we deal with this? How do other countries deal with it? You know how Canada deals with it? They do exactly the same thing. Not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying, how do you deal with it? Let's be constructive about it, but you can only be constructive about it and, and maybe overturn a wrong, possibly, if you don't focus on this one thing. Now, this is what Satan does. Satan gets us to focus on one thing and magnifies that one thing. So we're hurt and we're upset because of what this person said to us. And so we don't want to come to church anymore. Because of this one thing. This is big, big one thing, you see, that we're focused on. We shouldn't be focused on that. Yes, we might be hurt, but that's not going to stop me going to church to worship God with God's people. For example, do you see? So that's what Satan likes to do. He likes to get us to focus on one thing. All right, a little uh, time here for a little bit of a Puritan. Okay, so this is Richard Gilpin. Um, this this stuff here was kind of fresh in my memory because um, you know I had people in my family that because of their, their compassion and because of what they'd been told in the mainstream media, you know, they, they were saying, this is, this is absolutely outrageous. Some of them live in Canada. And I asked them, what does Canada do? And they didn't know. So I found out, Canada does the same thing. Um, but you see, it, it's so easy to to become, quote-unquote, irrational if you're given just a little bit of what of the truth or a little bit of, of a message and that's enough to really tick you off. This is how um, the Nazis won power. It's all down to the Jews. They're the ones taking the money. They're the ones, you know, who are making us poor. Um... This is what is, is happening. This is what Marxism does. Marxism, um, it says, you know, these people are wicked because, and then it calls people names. And so there's no argument. You're just one of these people. You're wi- and therefore you're wicked. 
There doesn't need to be a discussion or an argument. Now that person's wicked. That's the main idea. So how could these, how could uh, these ideas of Marx, how could it stoke, get the people up? How could all these people believe this stuff? Well, simple. Because you, you just blow up one main idea and get people to focus on that instead of more, there's more things to it, okay? Alright, so Richard Gilpin was a Puritan and he wrote a book called Demona Logica, Demonologia Sacra, Sacred Demonology. <laughs> and I'm going to, to uh, just bring a few things out that he wrote about Satan. This is his book here, it's a big thick book. This is on Satan as an adversary of Christians. There are other Puritan books. Thomas Brooks's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. A great book. Um, William Gurnall's book, um, Christian in Complete Armor, has some great stuff on that. The Puritans, they were aware of this. And you think, well, yeah, they were aware of this because they were the same people that went through the you know, Salem witch trials and so on. And so they were ignorant and they believed there were witches around every corner. No. That was not what they were like. The Salem Witch Trials was a ridiculous situation, but you've got to understand it in its context, and that's not the context that Gilpin is dealing with here. But the fact of the matter is that scripturally speaking, Satan is our great adversary. He's behind. He's a prince of the power of the air. He's the one we are supposed to be um, putting on the armor of God for. Not against ourselves, not against people, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against him. If that's what we're told to do by God, that means he, Satan, and the demons are very real, very present, very powerful, and they never give up. We've got to take them seriously. So... Gilpin says this, this is page 128, and he says, The Church of Corinth, among other problems, laboured under dangerous errors against which when the, uh, the apostle industrially sets himself, uh, he takes notice. I'm trying to take some of the old language out here. One, first of all, the false teachers. False teachers who had cunningly wrought them up on an, an aptitude of uh, going away from the simplicity of the gospel. Because false teachers had come into Corinth and the people have been listening to, to them, Paul has to say, why have you removed yourself from the simplicity of the gospel? He talks about false apostles. Okay? And Satan who transforms himself into a, you know, an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Then he says, uh, he especially accuses Satan as the great contriver of all this evil. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says, the God of this world has blinded people's minds, the unbelievers. Blinded people, do you believe that? You know, oh, I've, I've taken it off, but that's why I said, that's Satan that did that. He's blinded people's minds. 
It's not that these are bad people, any bad, any worse than anybody else that believe this stuff. It's just Satan's got a hold of them by tempting them by uh, his contrivances. He says further on here. that we must remember that it is Satan's work to tempt us. <laughs> that's his job. I mean, that's as he, as he sees it. That's what his job is. And he's very good at it. Now think about him that way. It's his work to do it. He says, we need not here dispute whether it is proper to Satan to tempt Okay, in other words, whether it's right for him to do it, just that he does it. He's the author, he's the engineer of these temptations, whether it comes from his mouth or not. He's the, the architect behind it all. It's the big ideas that he uses. Okay? And the little nudges, you know? That wasn't just, was it? Okay? You weren't noticed the way you should have been there. Why did that person get the award and you didn't get the award? You know, those kinds of things too. As well as the big ideas that, you know, evolution or world peace. There's a good one. Or the environment. Okay? These are huge ones that Satan uses. And again, they become the big balloon issues that people follow after and they think they're righteous for being indignant against somebody, usually some some governments or other, usually in the West, for being the evil perpetrators of these things. Not digging in to see whether these things were good or bad. Um, a good one is uh, oh, the evils of colonialism. Okay, Not understanding that if you actually dig into uh, where colonialism was in the different parts of Africa and the different parts of Asia, the countries that had, um, you know, colonialism are the countries that did better. Their lifestyles actually increased, their education increased, their health increased, the barbarities decreased. Um, Rodney Stark's books uh, are helpful on that. And Thomas Sowell's books are useful. So, he says that. He says also, not only is it his employment to do it, but Satan gives himself to it wholly. <laughs> I mean, he's, he loves his job. He walks to and fro, goes about, seeking advantages to do this. He can pass his sea and land to proselyte men to his slavery, using all means upon all men at all times with all diligence. I love that. And then he quotes Bishop Latimer, who was a martyr, who says that Satan was a very, bishop, a very busy bishop in his diocese. Thirdly, he takes delight in it. 
He, he just loves what he does. He loves it when people are brought away from God, when the populace moves further and further away from belief in God or belief in a regard for the Bible. He just loves it. He loves it when a Christian starts doubting God and God's goodness. Or when a Christian, you know, just gets um, taken away uh, in their emotions and thinks that their emotional high is, is worship to God, as if they're the same thing. Worship involves the emotions, but to say that just because you've got an emotional high that you're worshipping, well, you may well be deceived, might you? You may be just doing something that you like to do because it gives you an emotional high. All right? There may not be um, a uh, sincerity there. And I love this one. Satan doesn't care how it goes on, as long as it does. He doesn't care how the work gets done, as long as the work gets done. So, <laughs> so Satan will come around one side and try and tempt you here, and if that doesn't work, he'll come around this side and try and tempt you that way. And uh, does that a lot. He will do that a lot. So that a person will say, well, I would never, um, I would never fall for that. I'll never do that. And so Satan says, okay, well, we can't get that way. So let's try, try coming around this way and appeal to something else, which will get me where I, basically where I want to go. Or where I want him to go. It will do the same thing. It might take longer. But where is his weakness? Oh, well, this guy has a weakness for uh, covetousness or has a, a weakness in this area of, of pride in his life or this person has uh, a weakness for money or has uh, a weakness uh, maybe for notoriety or whatever it might be. Or they have a, like many Christians do, a herd mentality. You know, this is all, a lot of Christians are like this. So that um, you, you talk to them, you try and speak to them from the scriptures and get them to engage their minds and, and you can't get through to them. Why can't you get through to them? Because they're following some teacher, some celebrity. And it's this what this doctor so-and-so says. And that's the end of it. You know, you, you know that mentality, Yes. And Satan can get a person off that way. That person falls, boom. Big knock-on effect. Okay. Finally here, page 448. He says, these are things we need to understand. First of all, it is impossible to flee from him. It is impossible to flee from Satan. Now, you resist him and he'll flee from you, but you resist him in the Lord. But you can't flee from him. Okay, that's really good. 
He can follow us wherever we go. If we go to holy assemblies, he can come there. If we shut ourselves up in our closets, he can meet with us there. If we take ourselves to a wilderness or to a crowd, he will find us out. But then he says, we are expressly charged to resist him. James 4.7, resist the devil. 1 Peter 5.9, resist. So we can put up opposition to him, even though uh, we understand that it's impossible to get away from him. Next, if we fear him, it shows an unbelieving distrust of God's power. Because it's not our power that we resist him in, it's in God's power. So if we fear, there's something wrong, I would say, Gilpin will develop this but in another place, but there is something wrong with our allegiance to God. Because the righteous are as bold as a lion. Next he says, our fear of him, he calls it fainting, makes Satan triumph. It's a little victory for Satan. And then uh, he says, a sincere resolution of fighting against Satan and his temptation is to be on Christ's side against all sin. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin yourself, it's, but it means that in your thoughts you're going to um, you're going to agree with God about what he says about your sin. And then you're going to take steps to do what you need to do in order to not be tempted or quite so tempted again. Okay? And so, in Romans, sorry, <clears throat> chapter, there's chapter 12 I want to go to, but in chapter 7, at the end there, Paul says this. Now see if you can recognize what Gilpin is saying in, in scriptural language this time. Paul says this in Romans 7, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then, now he's not just giving up there, running scared. If then, I do what I will not do, that I don't, what I don't want to do. I agree with the law, and we can say I agree with scripture, I agree with God, that it's good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. In other words, I'm gonna keep on doing this, but as far as my decision, if it was within my power, I wouldn't do it. So I'm going to, even though I find myself sinning and I find myself doing that I don't want to do, 
I recognise that I don't want to do it. I recognise that it's wrong. I'm taking God's side on this. Do you see? For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to be to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I cannot find. It's not within me. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not do, or I will not to do, that I do. Now, he's reasoning. If I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then, he's discovering something about himself, that you should come to this conclusion yourself. If you want to trust God, you want to believe in God, you want to follow God, but you have this battle all the time, you should conclude like he concludes. I find then a law. There's a, there's a principle here. That evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good, I find this, this, this other principle. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law, another principle in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to, to the law of sin, which is in my members. A wretched man that I am. I mean, there's, there's no here, I've arrived, I'm a spiritual giant, I'm spiritually mature. It's not, none of that, is there? He's seeing himself for who he is. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? I thank God, going out to God again, not, not making himself the centre of the universe. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, with the mind, the way I'm thinking, my worldview, my outlook, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. I'm resolute to, to, to serve the law of God. With the flesh, the law of sin. With the flesh, the law of sin. Now, why is this important? Because we have to understand several things. I know we've got to go, but we've got to understand. First of all, we have to understand that we are never through with a battle. Ever. Secondly, we've got to understand that Satan is real and we are weakened because of sin within ourselves. Which means that we are no match for him ever. Okay? He knows how to deal with sin. He's intimately acquainted with sin. Thirdly, this tells us that God accepts us anyway. As long as our minds are trained, as Paul says in Romans 12, to be renewed. Yes? That we, as it were, are not conformed to this world, but we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Through the scriptures. We need the scriptures to, to renew our minds here. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves conformed to the world and its ideas. And then, with this, this understanding, we also understand that we don't, we can feel good about 
yeah, me, myself, as a human being, I'm a wretched person. That's the truth about me. So I'm not going to listen to anything that that uh, flatters me, that makes me feel that, that I'm somebody, because I'm not. But the attention, therefore, is turned where? The attention is turned to God. I thank God. So, again, what this does is it takes the, the light off of ourselves and puts it on God. And we, there, we serve God. God becomes the great idea that governs all the other ideas, that gives balance to everything else. Do you see this? And you can deal with a person, because uh, we're going to have conflicts, we're going to have problems and so on in this life, but you can deal with a person like that, but, but you've got to get them very often to that place or close to that place. You've got to get them to stop trusting in themselves. You've got to get them to understand there's no good in them. You've got to get them to own up to their sin. You've got to get them to understand that Satan does tempt them and he's real. And you've got to get them to be thankful and go out to God because he accepts them in any way and that they can have an attitude to serve God even where they feel sin having power over their body, as it were. That's, um, you do that to a, with a person, tell them the truths of Scripture. I'm telling you, most of their issues, not every single one, because not every single issue is, a, is just a spiritual issue, but, but all spiritual issues can be helped that way. And I think most counselling issues are spiritual issues. They may have physical um, entailments with them. You know, the old psychosomatic idea. Well, that's true because we're body and soul. And if that's true, then dealing with the spiritual side of it will eventually affect positively the physical side too. So as many pain, aches and pains will go away, uh, sluggishness will go away, for example, if you deal with depression in the right way, which is a spiritual malady in a many people. Not with every single person, but with many people it's a spiritual issue. So, be sober, be vigilant, because you're Adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who is that written to? Who? Christians. Christians. 